Take your Bible, friends, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians is in the second part of the Bible, which is called the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, I love when people who are new to the Bible are here. Um, I do have a particular heart for people who are not following Jesus or who are new. So that's why I say things like the verse numbers are the big numbers and the, I'm sorry, the verse numbers are the little numbers and the chapter numbers are the big numbers. So um, church family that have half the Bible memorized, keep those people in mind, you know, as we, as we welcome them. First Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at the end of verse 13, we are just focusing like a magnifying glass, so to speak, on the very end of this book that was written to people, um, you know, around 70 or 80 um, A.D., um, and is written by a man named Paul, who is an apostle who was sent out by Jesus and who is empowered by Jesus to um, preach the gospel specifically to people who are not Jewish. So we have this letter. And we believe that when we read this letter, that it's actually God's words, that God moved in, around and through and in the writing so that these words are actually God's words. And that God actually speaks to us through these words. And so that's why we pay so close attention to the Bible and that's my conviction, to say what the Bible says. So I invite you to pay attention to it today and consider these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're, in, we're beginning at the end of verse 13, where it says, Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Is this God's word? I forgot to have you stand. Remind me to do that next week, okay? Okay, so, friends, this is one of the most countercultural messages that you might ever hear. And it doesn't really seem that countercultural if you're that familiar with the Bible. Um, but this is an incredibly countercultural message because of this perspective that everybody in our community and everybody in our society has. And it's, it's not countercultural in the area of sexual ethic or of, or of absolute truth or something like that. It's countercultural in the area of it smacks the face of individualism, which is one of the biggest problems in our society <laughs> everything about our society says it's all about the individual doesn't it you can you can individualize everything and customize everything in your life for you as an individual and we think it's strange even to think that I have responsibility for other people outside of myself there's this quote I want to share with you today from Miley Cyrus huge theologian here she said as long as you're not hurting anyone your choices are your choices this is the philosophy of of miss cyrus and this is the philosophy of our culture in general isn't it let's just agree to get along with one another you mind your business i'll mind my business and then we'll just all live happy lives as best we can, and then just stop annoying each other, and then, you know, everything is going to work out fine. Do you see that in this culture? I see it all the time. But then we come to passages like this in 1 Thessalonians, 
where the writer is actually expecting these Christians to have a mindset where they acknowledge and take responsibility for all of these people around them. This individualism mindset is even crept into the church, hasn't it? Because we have Christians who go to this church because they like what this pastor says and they don't want these people to know what's going on in their lives and so they'll just skip around churches whenever they starts to get too personal it's even individual in the way that we come into our church if you're new and this is true of me too when I go if I was ever going to go to a church to find a new church just as a normal person not a preacher you know I wouldn't really want to talk to a whole lot of people when I first walked in you know I'd want to creep in the back I want to really not have a whole lot of interaction just to feel it out because I don't I'm not super comfortable sharing all kinds of things in my life with you especially if I don't know you. You know, it's, it's individualism, and it is ingrained in us. It's just in every facet of our lives, friends. It's, it's, it's like the air we breathe. We don't even realize that it's there. So that's why this, these kind of passages seem so awkward for us, because we see these commands that Paul gives us and that we believe that God gives us, And it seems like, oh, I don't know that I want people doing that in my life, you know. And I certainly don't feel comfortable doing that in other people's lives, you know. Part of the reason we don't feel comfortable is because we only spend about an hour together a whole week. And that's if you're a good Christian, you know. Um, So this is a huge problem. This is just a massive thing that is just way beyond what I could talk about in this one sermon, okay. But what we see here is six things that he tells us to do for one another. I'm going to mention these six things quickly, and then I'm going to ask you to raise your hand at the end of the service for a few questions, and then I'm going to summarize the main um, commitment that you'd be making if you're going to do these things, and then I'll ask you to consider someone that God's bringing to mind for taking action on each of these things. Let's go with number one, shall we? Here we go. If you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, the first thing he tells us to do right here is be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. It's difficult to say what exactly was happening to raise conflict in this church about 2,000 years ago. We can tell from reading the, the book, and we have went through the book re- previously, we can tell from reading the book that there was a group of people that were idle and that they weren't working and they were becoming, uh, causing problems because they thought the return of Jesus was going to be at any moment. Here's one of the core beliefs of our faith is we believe that Jesus Christ is actually coming back to earth. Amen? He's coming back to earth literally and they thought it was going to happen so soon that some of them actually just stopped working. They didn't make ends meet for themselves or their family and they were mooching off other Christians. Perhaps there was conflict going on in the church because of that. And so he tells them to have peace among yourselves. Friends, don't be arguing with one another, Christians. Be at peace among yourselves. Forgive one another. Don't be holding on to grudges that somebody who's a fellow member of this church does something to you and you're going to hold on to it. And and there's some people in this room maybe that you won't even talk to them and you're a fellow member of this church because of conflict that's happened between you and them. That's not the way God wants you to live, church family. Be at peace among yourselves. 
Be at peace among yourselves. You know what? If, if you're not even willing to talk to a fellow member of this church as a member, don't you think there's a problem there? Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. The Bible tells us several times to pursue this. Romans chapter 14, pursue peace. Hebrews chapter 12, Holy Spirit says, strive for peace with everyone. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace among yourselves. There's the first thing he tells us to do. The second thing is the next phrase in the text. And the text says, admonish the idol. Here's the second thing. Write this down. Admonish the idol. He's telling you to admonish the idol. Notice he says before that in verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. There's intensity behind this command. We urge you, I beg of you, admonish the idol. These are important, aren't they? Now, we wonder what the, what, who the idol were. It makes me think of a car. It's idling, right? An idle person in this context is not just somebody who's just not doing anything. We can learn more about what this person is like from other parts of this letter, 1 Thessalonians. And then there's another one that he wrote that we can learn about these same people as well. I want to point your attention to those cases, okay? Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12. We learn more about who these idle people are here so we can better understand how to apply it, okay? He says, aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So that, if he's telling them to do these things, then that means there's people who aren't living quietly and who are minding other people's business, get sticking their nose where it doesn't belong. That is a thing, by the way. And he tells them, work with your hands. They're idle. They're not working. And they're sticking their nose where it doesn't belong. Let's look in 2 Thessalonians just to get a better picture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, Even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. There's the same word, idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Bazinga, Paul. That's a shot to the heart. Now it's becoming clear, isn't it, about what these people were like. People that were not working, perhaps because they thought Jesus was going to return at any moment. And they were getting into everybody's business, depending on their income for their food. They, li- they spent a lot of time together in that time, in that church. And instead of being busy at work, they were busy bodies, causing problems. And now he tells us what to do for those people in our church. And the word is admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. Raise your hand if you know what the word admonish means. Admonish basically means to warn. It's a strong urge or warning. Hey, beware. He's telling you, friends, for those people who instead of being productive in their work, have all their time to nitpick and to get their nose into everybody's business, you are called to warn them. This is what God is telling you to do. I was in a musical in college. Can you believe it? It was The Music Man. Have you ever seen The Music Man? There is, uh, the Music Man is about this uh, woman named Marion the Librarian. 
clever, huh? And this man that she ends up falling in love with, who in love with, who was a traveling music man. He went across towns and created bands. Uh, you know, not like rock bands, but like you know, horns and trumpets, things like that. You know, he's a huckster, and Marion is the local librarian. Well, there's this one scene where these uh, there's these women who are also local who are gossiping about Marion, the librarian. And they have this little jingle that they do in the background. And then overlaid with that is this other kind of melody thing. And so I'm going to demonstrate the little jingle for you right now, okay? It goes like this. Pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, cheep, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more, pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, cheep, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more. Get it? You want to try it? Just kidding. We'll do that later. Pretty clever, isn't it? The author of this play... She was communicating something about these women, wasn't she? She made this, the, that noise sound like chickens. Did you hear how it sounded like that? Like a cluck, 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 you know? Like, and this is what these women are doing. They're picking, they're talking, they're picking at people. And like an like a annoying little chicken that just gets in your business and pecks at the ground is what these women are doing to Marion, the librarian, and that is what some, maybe even of you do, friends. Whose job is it to warn them? It is your job, friends, to warn them. It's right here. My job to equip you, I'm, I'm supposed to tell you what the Bible says for you to do, and the Bible says for you right here, admonish the idle. Those busybodies who are not doing anything productive with their lives because they're retired now and they haven't picking up a good hobby, or because they're not working like they should. They've got all this time to stick their nose into everybody's business. They know how everybody should live their lives. But they're not focusing on themselves. It is your job to warn them. You warn them and say, are you really following Christ here? Don't you know that Christ is coming back and he will have to prove who belongs to him? And does this prove that you belong to him by the way you're nitpicking everybody? That's your job, friends. The second thing he tells you to do, admonish the idol. The third thing he tells us to do, number three, encourage the faint-hearted. We see that right there in verse 14. We urge you, brothers, dot, 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 encourage the faint-hearted. You can understand why some of these people might have been faint-hearted. They've had people that died and and. They were unsure about their resurrection. They didn't have a whole lot of time with Paul and Timothy and Silas when they were there, as we can tell in the first part of the book. They were confused about the return of the Lord. And so they were sorrowful as people were that had no hope, he says, at one part in the book. And so Paul wants to them, the Christians, to encourage those people because they're faint-hearted. Because they are, it's like their soul is shrinking. That's what this word was in the original text. It's like, it means like, it's a compound word. Small of soul is a literal understanding of that word. Faint-hearted. It's like they're, they're shriveling up because of the persecution or because of the uncertainty, because of the sorrow that's going on in their lives. And it's the church's job to encourage the faint-hearted, not just the pastor, I learned about an amazing plant last night, and it's called Mimosa Pudica. Mimo- that sounds like one a drink, but anyway, that's different. The Mimosa Pudica. It's also known as the sleepy plant or the touch-me-not. Anybody heard of that? It reacts dramatically to touch 
or to trauma. And I saw a video of it. You should look it up on YouTube later. It's pretty cool. There's this guy who lights a match, and the plant literally shrivels away from it. Not because it's burnt. It's still green. It just pulls back. Or if you flick it with your finger, it shrivels up and pulls away to try to protect itself when it goes through trauma. Have you ever done that? I have. Something happens in your life. Somebody says something to you that just cuts you right in the place where the devil knows it's supposed to cut you. (laughs) And you just shrivel up. You want to pull back. Something happens in your life. You lose somebody you love. You lose a job. You've got wounds, you know, like when I was playing baseball and I'm getting ready for a ball to come and it comes up and hits me right in the mouth, you know. The next time a ball comes to you, you know what you're going to do? Like that. And that's how some of, that's how we can get, right? It's like we're shriveling up on the inside. Here's the cool thing about this plant. The way to get it to relax and to be healthy again is to expose it to the sun. Now that'll preach, won't it? We have an opportunity then for those who have been hurt, they've gone through trauma, some kind of hurt or pain or disappointment in their lives. Expose them to the Son of God. Point them to Christ. Encourage the faint-hearted. We have a wrong perspective about what encouragement is, friends. Biblical encouragement is not flattery. Biblical encouragement is pointing people not to themselves. Don't say you look nice. Don't say you did really good when you did this. Say God loves you. You point them to God and his faithfulness, not their faithfulness or their goodness. That's not biblical encouragement because that will only last as long as they're doing a good job. And if you're like me, you know that you don't do a good job all the time. Here's what you say. You say, can we go shopping? Probably not a guy thing, but if you're a girl, can we go shopping? I just want to spend time with you and let you know I care about you. And God cares about you. That's it. Can we go shopping? They're wounded. They're shriveled up. Encourage them. You know, people can't take instruction if they're hurt. They can't take instruction if they're hurt. There might be sin in their life, friends. Their hurt might be a result of their sin. But as long as they're hurt... They're not going to be able to see that. That was the true in the, uh, the nation of Israel. It says this in Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Encourage before you instruct. Encourage the faint-hearted. Meet once a week with someone. And read Hebrews 12, 1 through 11 together and pray for one another over coffee. Take a guy to the go-kart place, that indoor go-kart place that's amazing. It goes like 300 miles an hour. And tell them you care about them and tell them you know that God loves them. Look at someone in the eye when they're looking down and say, God has this. He cares about you. Put your hand on someone's shoulder. Hug them. Smile. Stop saying, I'll pray for you. And pray for them right then. Encourage the faint-hearted. You ready for number four? Fourth thing he tells us is to help the weak. Help the weak. We urge you, brothers, dot, dot, dot. 
help the weak. Physically weak? We don't know, really. Spiritually weak, as in they have a weak conscience, like the, some people in 1 Corinthians. Those with a weak faith, maybe they're unsure about their relationship with God because of their uncertainty about the return of Christ. In this case, we're not sure what he exactly meant for those people who are weak. Could have been any of those things. But it probably applies to all those people, doesn't it? Help anyone around you who is weak. When you go to Chick-fil-A, which you can't go today, which makes me mad. Because I want to go every day, that's why, just kidding. When you go to Chick-fil-A, they respond with two words whenever you say thank you. You know what those words are? Only one person knows this? They respond with my pleasure. Friends, go to Chick-fil-A, it's amazing. They respond with the words, my pleasure. I'm wondering about your salvation right now. That's not true. <laughs> they respond with my pleasure. They get paid to say that, right? I don't really know if it's their pleasure, but they have to say it. They get paid to say that. But that perspective is the perspective that we should have for those who are weak. You help them. It's my pleasure to help you. It's my pleasure to help you. However I can help you. However somebody needs help. As a member of this church, you should be able to be willing to help them. Go get their groceries. Shovel their driveway, cut their grass, drive them to church, offer to pick them up on Wednesday nights because they don't like to drive in the dark. Hello, people who are not afraid of doing that. Think about your brothers and sisters who would come to church on Wednesdays, but don't because they can't drive. Why aren't you asking to take them? Help the weak. Help them find Leviticus in Sunday school. Text them to remind them to read their Bible in the morning. This is your job. Number five, be patient with them all. Number five, be patient with them all. Again in verse 14, we urge you brothers, be patient with them all. No matter what kind of person you find at the church, whether it's the idol, whether it's those who are causing conflict, whether it's uh, somebody that's weak, You be patient with all of them. Do you know why he's telling us to be patient? Do you know what he's implying? That there are people who are going to try your patience. (laughs) There are people who are members of this church that you have covenanted together with who are going to try your patience. Uh, I talk to people sometimes and they, they have an issue with the church that they came from. Sometimes there are good reasons to leave a church. Sometimes there are biblical reasons to leave a church. I think so. But sometimes it's just evidence of somebody just not being very patient with one another. They're just not that patient. They are agitated with one another and, and somebody's just said something annoying to them just one too many times. And you know what? I'm just not going to deal with that. Friends, you're part of the body of Christ. You can run away from a problem at another church. It's going to follow you. Because there are other people just like that at the church down the street. Be patient with them all, friends. Be patient. Be patient. Love is patient, isn't it? Love is patient. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. One day Peter walked up to Jesus, and Peter said, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? thought that was the number of completion, right? That's just the perfect numbers. Seven times, and you know what Jesus says? Seventy times seven. Does Jesus just love the number 490? No, he's exaggerating to make a point, isn't he? Every single time they sin against you, you should forgive them. Every single time. Be patient with one another. Patience cannot be outsinned. Be patient with one another. Number six. Perhaps the hardest one. Ensure all do good when wronged. Look at the text here. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. The Holy Spirit says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You see the responsibility he gives you, church family? This is very personal, isn't it? Now, you don't just have responsibility for those and their interaction with you. Now you have responsibility for how your brothers and sisters interact with those who have wronged them. You see that when somebody is wronged, that they do not return evil for evil. You see to it that when your brother or sister is defrauded or swindled or taken advantage of, it's partly your job to make sure that they do good instead of evil in return. This is what God's word is saying to you, friends. Well, I don't know that I could do that. Well, let's look at the example that was happening here in the church of Thessalonica. Okay, There's this man named Jason. We see about him in Acts chapter 17. This is when Paul and the apostles first brought the message of the gospel to this area. Okay, look at it here in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 5. Before this, they had just heard the gospel and people had started to surrender their lives to Christ and the church was starting to grow, which is that's what the church is, is followers of Jesus, by the way. The church starts to grow in this city and now look how they respond to this man named Jason. But the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. You understand what's happening here? Can you imagine this happening to you for the sake of Christ in downtown Royal Oak? You're welcoming these people who talk about Christ and the exclusivity of salvation in him, which smacks in the face of this whole individualism in our culture. And they're dragging you downtown by that weird statue in downtown Royal Oak with the fountain, you know. And they're bringing civil authorities before you and they're causing a ruckus, bringing people out of the businesses downtown, telling you people what you're doing. Essentially, 
encouraging all those people to hate you and persecute you. And then they forcibly take money from you (laughs) in order to leave you alone. And then Paul says, don't you call a lawyer to sue somebody. You make sure, church family, that Jason does not return evil for evil on those people that have hurt him. It is your job to make sure that Jason seeks to do good to those civil authorities. Do we do that? I told you this is one of the most countercultural messages you'll ever hear. Miley Cyrus is not right. At least not if you want to be a Christian and live like the Bible says you should live as a Christian. Your choices impact me. My choices are in part your job. Your choices together are your job. (laughs) Don't you see, friends? We will be held accountable, not just for our relationship with Jesus, but for how we helped or did not help our relationships with Jesus. This is the calling. This is what it means to be a church. Make sure that they don't do that. When a member tells you about what someone did to them, it's fine to listen and emphasize, and stopping there is sin. Certainly encouraging revenge is absolutely sin. You'll be held accountable for that, friends. Encourage them to do good to the one who's talking bad about them. Someone's complaining to you about something that happened in the church that they don't like. You just identify with them and say, oh, it's going to be fine. Just let it go. No, no, no. You encourage them to do good to the person who did something to them that they don't like. That's what the Bible says to do, friends. Someone's taken advantage of by a company or an individual, a fellow member of this church, It's not wrong to call the police, if that's appropriate. But it's clear that you must make sure that they do not get revenge, but that they actually seek to bless that company or individual. You say, it's just a company. People work for that company. Somebody owns that company. This is your job, friends. Bottom line is we have to take this perspective right here in this sentence. I'm taking ownership for your walk with Christ. I'm taking ownership of your walk with Christ. Friends, do you see that this is what, that's part of what it means to be a Christian? A Christian who is separated from the body of Christ is a dismembered body part. You cannot function like you're supposed to unless you're part of the body. And being part of the body means when your thumb hurts, all your attention goes to the thumb because it's hurting. This is what the body of Christ is, friends, right? This is what God is telling you to do. But why would I ever do this? I mean, there are some people, if you don't have a great, this is part of what I, part of the problem is that we just don't spend that much time together. Can we just acknowledge that? We don't spend enough time together. 
I mean, can you imagine trying to do these things for somebody that you talk to in a normal, casual kind of way once a week if you're a good Christian (laughs) and then try to actually do these things? First of all, you're not going to know who's weak. You're not going to know who's idle. You're going to do it in the wrong kind of way. You're not going to have the kind of relationship that you need in order to speak in a way that they're going to hear you, right? You're not going to know who these people are because we think that church is just this place I go to to get preaching that I like or music that I like, individualism. Perhaps some of us need to start by inviting one member or one family from our church over to our house at least once a week. Wouldn't that be a great idea? Somebody from our church coming over to my house once a week. Maybe we should actually come to church on Wednesday nights so we could actually get to know each other a little bit. But I don't like those things that happen. Well, I'm sorry, I I thought this was not really about you. I thought this was about the body of Christ and your job in helping the body. Why would you ever do this? Why would we ever do this? We should do this because we realize the spirit of Christ is commanding us to. Because Christ gave his life so we could have peace with God and so we seek peace with other people. Because Christ worked righteousness for us when we were idle to obey the Father. Because Christ's Spirit encourages us when we're faint-hearted, so we encourage the faint-hearted. Because Christ truly helped us when we weren't just weak, but dead in our sin. And unable to please God. Because the Father has been so patient with us. He's been so patient with us, hasn't he? Forgiving us time and time and time and time again. Who Jesus actually does forgive us 490 times. And so you do that to your brother and sister. 